And the, at this point in time, the teens can be dismissed. They were going to be in Matthew 19. And the last time we looked at in Matthew 18 was really our responsibilities towards one another when there's a breakdown in the relationship. And I'll tell you, there's just some scriptures where people come to me after service. I had about seven or eight people say, that spoke to me. That was all about my situation. So you know what? We are sinners. We hurt each other's feelings. There is breakdowns in relationships. And uh, the Bible is clear about how we can mend those relationships and get them back uh, towards reconciliation. But today we're going to look at uh, the Pharisees testing Jesus about marriage and divorce and the rich young ruler. So we'll jump in in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So Jesus is heading to the Jerusalem area. He's in Judea. Uh, No doubt he's going to run into more of the religious crowd. He runs into the Pharisees. Now these guys had an appearance about themselves. They wore special vestments, special clothing, insignias, insignias. They had a particular character about themselves. They were rule-oriented, attention to detail. As a matter of fact, they took God's word and they made it so difficult that it was strangulating to the people and it was hard to follow their form of doctrine. Uh, They really misrepresented God uh, in many ways. They were uh, loveless. Now, the area of Jerusalem was where the temple was. It really was supposed to be the spiritual hub of the Jews. But unfortunately, over the time, it turned into the religious hub. And there's a huge difference between spiritual and religious. It became a routine. So I just need to give you a little bit of a background before we look at the dialogue between Jesus and these religious leaders. These guys were not concerned with the truth of God's word. They were just looking to trap Jesus. Well, what doctrine do you follow? Do you follow Rabbi Hillel, which was a rabbi, established school at that period of time, or Rabbi Shammai? Rabbi Shammai was uh, very conservative. Rabbi Hillel was very liberal. Rabbi Hillel, one of his famous sayings about marriage and divorce. Now, we know what God says. Hillel said that if your wife burns your dinner, you could divorce her. Now, every time I say that, I get a few chuckles. However... If you understand the culture at the time, it wasn't funny to the poor woman who was thrown out on the street. So this guy was playing fast and loose with God's word, as a lot of people do today, and it had terrible implications, certainly for the wife at that time. But what it goes to show you is that we still need to evangelize the religious. Some think, well, they're religious. They follow a routine. They, they do these rituals, and, and they must be okay. Not necessarily. If you look at these guys, they made a living off of the word, but they were not living the word. There's a key difference there. A living off of the word, but they were not living the word. Verse 4. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Quoting Genesis. And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, And be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus goes back to the beginning. He goes back to Genesis. 
And that's really a good place to start when religion muddies up what God's word is saying. Let's go back to the word. Let's go back to God's original plan. So we go back to Genesis and we know that his original plan was one man and one woman to become one flesh. See, God took uh, out of Adam's side. He performed surgery. He put Adam to sleep, put him under God's anesthesia. He took part of his side and he made Eve. He made the woman out of the man. And then when we get married, we become back to one flesh. We become one again. It's a beautiful thing to watch in a marriage. There's certain limitations physically, but we want to be as close to our spouse as possible. However, there's also the mental aspect and the spiritual aspect. I will tell you there's many times where my wife and I answer each other's sentences. We bounce ideas off of each other. She's just as much a student of the Bible as I am. And sometimes we, we get into these discussions about the word and we start interrupting each other to tell, you know, we just have such a passion for the word of God. That's one flesh. Very, very important. And that is necessary for ministry. If a husband and wife are not united in one flesh in ministry, it is a marriage killer because there are a lot of pressures when, when you go to oppose Satan and try to bring souls into the kingdom. But we look at this and we see that God's plan was not originally, it's not his plan even now. We look at the things that are happening today. His plan is not for divorce, polygamy, adultery, homosexuality, or any of the other accepted modes that our culture holds so dear. It's for a man and a woman to become one flesh and build a life together. Now, what I really love about this is he reinforces Genesis. There's a brand of pseudo-Christianity out there that's attacking the fundamental and the foundation of what God has established in Genesis. And also in the book of Revelation, where God's re revelation is revealing, his showing us who, who he is, the revealing of his son, Jesus Christ. They're attacking it, and they're calling themselves Christians. I will say this, that it's, a, it's an age-old riddle. If evolution is true, how do some of these chicken and egg systems happen at the same time? How does DNA exist when it needs protein to become DNA? How does protein exist when it needs DNA to be the blueprints of that protein? Okay, I've heard the arguments. Well, in the primordial soup, peptides can bond together and make polypeptides, and all of a sudden proteins happen. There's a problem with that because there's laws such as gravity and the law of mass action. And the law of mass action says there's too much solvent in the primordial soup. So as quickly as a peptide will bond together and make a small polypeptide, it will also readily unbond in an equilibrium equation. So what happens is you never get a protein, ever. Millions, billions, trillions, they keep putting more zeros, it doesn't matter. An apple will never turn into an orange. So understand that. Let's go back to the beginning. The reproductive system, but for a man, a man and a woman, you know, if it takes millions of years and they only live 70 or 80 years, how does that happen if they both have to happen at the same time? The species dies. I just love the, the science behind why we should, we should defend what we believe. And Jesus oftentimes went back to Genesis. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Verse 4. Jesus says to them, have you not read... No doubt, you wonder why they wanted to crucify him. These were religious leaders. They knew the Bible. They made money off of the Bible. They money, made money off of God's word. But he said, have you not read? No doubt an insult to these people. It doesn't matter 
what I think. You know, sometimes I'll stop and I'll say, okay, this is what Pastor Joe thinks. And I'll separate that from what the word says. I have an idea, but I'm not really sure. I'm just giving out my idea. Make sure you follow the word if you think there's a conflict there. It doesn't matter what we think. The world is filled with dumb opinions. It matters what God says in his word. Verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? See, they're trying to trick him. Verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. The trick... Well, Moses said this, you're saying, this is the the craziness of this argument. And sometimes you'll talk to somebody who may be religious, and they'll throw a bunch of things out there, but, but they're not seeing what God's original design and plan was. The plan was to get Jesus to talk bad about Moses. And they said, he commanded, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. God permitted. Now, let me tell you, let me help you to understand this. I could look at this and say, this was one of the earliest forms of domestic violence laws, and I'll tell you why. Because at the culture, the man is the stronger person in the household could say to the wife, get out, I'm done with you. This is my house, this is my place, you're done. So seeing, upon seeing how wicked men treated their wives and bullied them and, and threw them out on the street, God says, okay, now it's going to be a law. Moses, you tell them that if a man's going to divorce his wife, he needs to write out, not through email or Pony Express or smoke signals, write out a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand so that when she leaves that home, she can have freedom. Freedom. She can start all over again. And if you don't do it, it is a violation of God's law. So when we understand the culture, this stuff really starts to make sense. These guys were looking at the religious leaders as a cold thing. Well, who cares what the woman's problem is? Jesus is saying because of the sin of man, and listen, sometimes it's the wife's fault, sometimes it's the man, but the fact is in those days, the man could just kick his wife out of the house. So the man was going against God's law if he didn't give her that certificate and give her freedom to remarry or to carry on her life without him. I love looking at the, um, because, you know, there's an attack on the scriptures. You see it in the media at times, and people don't know what they're talking about. Look at the Old Testament. In Numbers 27, my son and I are going through the book of Numbers. The four daughters of Zelophehad, they went to the leadership of Israel and said, we don't have any brothers. Our father died, and we haven't gotten a dime. We haven't gotten any inheritance. So they appeal to Moses. Moses goes to God, and God goes, yeah, give him, give him some inheritance. So God said, they're absolutely right. They should get an inheritance. Uh, another scripture, uh, Numbers 30, where if a, a man, a husband, hears his wife make a promise to God, and he knows in his heart she can't keep that, he'll, he'll, he'll nullify that. He'll say, well, you can try it, but I'm nullifying it. Now, what happens, according to the scripture, is if she doesn't keep the promise to the Lord, she doesn't bear the sin. It goes now, it transfers to the husband. So when you really understand God's word, you understand it's fair. There are some that'll pick things out of the scripture without context, throw them out at you. The Bible is under attack. Make no no mistake. And the more we know about the scripture, the more it makes sense, right? And we need to point those things out. So going back to divorce, there was only really three ways that you could, you know, today it's no-fault divorce, sort of like no-fault car insurance. Hey, it's nobody's fault. You know, let's just get divorced. It's weird. uh, But... Three ways for divorce, according to God's word. Number one was sexual immorality on either party. 
Uh, number two, 1 Corinthians 7, we see abandonment. If a person just disappeared and, you know, they don't come back and they start another life, it's, the, it's abandonment. And the third is death of a spouse. Now, we prefer uh, death of natural causes, okay? Sometimes you've got to say that. <laughs> well, Pastor Joe said, no, Pastor Joe didn't say, okay? <laughs> but I have to stress that there's two extremes in this is number one marriage is taken lightly now we'll see the disciples response to jesus really cherishing marriage they're kind of blown away by his his take on it his teaching on it in our society you can get divorced for any reason no fault doesn't matter they streamline it now uh divorce is you know if it's not for these these reasons it's a sin however it isn't the unpardonable sin some churches t- treat divorced people pretty, pretty bad, and we don't do that here. Repent of it and move on. God forgives. So we have to make sure there's balance in everything that we do. Verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. And I'm going to stop it there and, and read it in a minute. So the truth is, marriage needs to be taken seriously. I never understand, and maybe someone can explain it to me because uh, I'm just fallible and I could be wrong. I don't get Christian prenuptials. I don't get that. Two Christians come together and they make out a legal document. You're setting yourself up for failure. Well, this is mine and this is yours. What's that all about? If you love your possessions that much and you're that rich, then don't get married. Marry your possessions, right? Or get to know the person more than a few weeks and let it not just be a physical attraction before you say, I do. My wife and I have a great Christian, well, we have a great financial plan. What happens is I go out and make the money and she spends it. It works. <laughs> now I can see the wives after service. Hey, you heard what Pastor Joe said, fork it over. <laughs> you need to know where to take humor and, okay, let's move on. But the disciples were taken aback by the seriousness of how sacred the Lord held marriage. And our society needs to do the same. And to the singles, I say this. I was single. I wanted to be married. You know, I'm just not the type that wants to be by myself. Uh, But to the singles, I will tell you this. From what I've seen in the years I've done counseling, in the years I've uh, seen some heartbreaking things, a bad marriage is worse than being lonely. So pray about it. Make sure you have the right person. Um, You know, don't just jump into something because marriage is serious. On a personal note, my wife... When she was younger and when I was younger, we were both products of our parents being divorced. We got married and, you know, when all the the fireworks and stuff subside, we didn't know how to live every day because we knew what not to do. And we still did some of those that we shouldn't have done. But we didn't know what to do because we didn't have functional examples. And thank God there were some Christians that came into our life that were older and showed us how a man and a wife are supposed to treat each other. I would say this too. I can never give a blessing to a man to go out on his own, start a ministry, lay hands on him if his wife is not on board. Again, that's a, that's a death sentence to a marriage. I've seen it, and I've seen it, and I've seen it crumble. I've seen it multiple times. It's not a business. When you go and you serve the Lord, it's a serious stuff. It's a spiritual endeavor. And the, the man and the wife both have to be of the same mind when it comes to this. Verse 12, so Jesus gives this example and he uses a, a, 
situation that everybody would have known back then, and he makes a spiritual application. He says, verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. A eunuch is, well, it still happens today, not here, it's not legal, but it happens in other countries, and it basically is where a man is castrated, um, the testosterone and the testicles are removed, uh, so he has no desire for women. And usually what the kings would do is they would make eunuchs so he could take care of the harem without being concerned about him doing something he shouldn't be doing with the harem. It's a very cruel and, and awful thing. But Jesus was trying to express something here, the typical parable. You guys, you know what eunuchs are, disciples, Peter, John, you've seen it. Let me, let me tell you about this. Number one, they were born eunuchs. Some men have a congenital situation or condition where they have no desire for women. So that's being born that way, congenital singleness. Uh, number two, forced singleness in, in, in the uh, terms of a eunuch, which is like slavery or for, forced servitude. The third one is really what he's focusing on. He said some men make themselves eunuchs. Now, I think it was Origen who actually took this literally and castrated himself. Um, that's some of the readings that I've read, and that's kind of crazy. That wasn't what Jesus was saying. But he made, they make themselves single for the service of the Lord. So in other words, uh, the Apostle Paul, by all understanding, and especially if you read Corinthians, he says, well, Peter had a wife and the other disciples. I could take a wife, but I choose not to. I can, he seems to be able to get a lot more done, and, and he was really on fire, and I guess he didn't have time for the courting process. So he made himself single for the kingdom of heaven. I will say this to you singles again. I don't know why, but this just keeps coming up with me, and I'm actually looking around. I see a lot of singles today, so I guess it's, it's the Holy Spirit. If you have a desire for the Lord, or you had a desire for the Lord, and you get yourself yoked, even if it's not marital, with a relationship with someone, and they don't have a fire for the Lord, your fire for the Lord could take months, could take years, is eventually going to be so small that it's barely visible. It's going to be like when you lift up a gas stove and you say, where's the fire? Oh, it's that little pilot light under there. It's there, but it's, it's covered. So keep that in mind. If you have a, a fire for the Lord, some of you, through relationships or other means, may have had your fire put out a little bit. Right? Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the message for you to rekindle that flame and your love for the Lord that's just been kind of smoldering in there. I will say that when you find a spouse, as I have, who has the same fire for the Lord as you do, in pharmacological uh, understanding, we call that the synergistic effect. Right? But me plus her equals an effect that's greater than the sum of me plus her. It's just the Lord did that incredible work, but, it, you know, it's something to pray about. Verse 13. Then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. We just read this in Matthew 18. <laughs> These disciples, you know, it's so cool, though, because we can look at disciples and say, gee, there's hope for me. How many times did Jesus have to say the same thing to them and they kept making the same mistakes? What are you pushing the kids away for? And I think the whole point to this is that we can never get too big that we don't look at the least esteemed in society. That's a really important point, especially in ministry. Remember, these have ministerial applications, 
and they also have applications for the, for the average believer. So we can never get too big for our britches that we don't have time for the children. I will tell you that I speak to my, my leaders, and I say, you know what, lately we got a lot of 20-somethings coming into this church. You know, I think we should say hello to everyone. But some of them are coming in, they're coming from dysfunctional relationships. Some of them are coming in unwittingly looking for role models. Say hello, shake their hand, and I don't mean in a phony way. Get to know them, look them in the eye. And I'm not saying that they're the little children, but I'm saying that we have a lost generation of 20-somethings. All the statistics show it, right? Uh, my wife is actually, she has started something with the young ladies, the 20-somethings in this church. It's very new. Uh, and she's talking about trying to get them together and have their own time here for prayer and the word and to just talk about the issues and the troubles that they face. I think it's a great idea. Other churches do it. It's time for us maybe to start doing this, as well as the young men. So uh, it's, it's something to really be concerned about, that we're not so big that we ignore some at the expense of those that may be more esteemed in society. Don't do it. So what's the contrast? Number one, the, the Pharisees are arguing about, about divorce, not really concerned about the issue with the wife, um, just arguing. Uh, the disciples were annoyed by the unimportant children, and Jesus was basically saying to them, don't you dare get like them. You need to be different than them. Okay? The Pharisees were interested in their own importance. They started wearing certain clothes. They started cutting this, their beards in a certain way. They um, would avoid looking at a person that they felt was beneath them. Right? This is what happens with religion. And Jesus says, not my followers. Don't do it. Don't do it. Verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard what he was saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We have another religious leader on the scene. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. Um, Probably not the same sect as the Pharisees. Pharisees were more in the Sanhedrin. This guy was, uh, they had the temple, right? And the Sanhedrin was involved in temple activities and ruling the Jewish people under the Roman yoke. And then you had your synagogues, which kind of popped up after the first temple was destroyed. And the synagogues remained, even though the second temple went up. So what you had was each little synagogue had a ruler. You had somebody who facilitated, who uh, maybe owned the synagogue, and he went with the bylaws of the Jewish codes and things like that. So here's another religious leader. Now, I have to think, and I just want to, you know, I take all the gospel accounts into account. Mark's gospel said that he ran and knelt before Jesus. So I have to believe that he started off genuine. So what does Jesus do? Number one, he presses the rich young ruler about his addressing of Jesus. Why do you call me good? You just said something. Do you realize what you said? You ever run into somebody who says something and you you think the light bulb goes off? They're getting it. 
Jesus says, before we continue, let's go back. You called me good. Why did you do that? Only God is good. Was there a revelation that you missed that came out of your mouth? Was that shown to you? Are you going to grasp onto that or are you going to push it to the side? A little bit of introspection there. Okay? So that's the first thing that happens. Number two, Jesus correctly reads the man's desires to get to heaven by his works. He says, what shall I do? You know, what shall I do to have eternal life? So with Jesus' line of reasoning, he basically says to him, well, keep the commandments. Now we know that that's, we can't keep the commandments, but he was leading him into hopefully uh, being self-aware of some of these truths that he was missing. Jesus sent them down that, that uh, line of reasoning. We know that nobody can keep the law perfectly. And Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount that even if you think an evil thought, to think of hurting somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. And the list goes on. So, you know, we know that that can't be the, the case. And I wonder, or I don't wonder, but some may say, well, why was he kind of playing this cat and mouse game with him? Again, he was trying to help him to become self-aware of where his failures were so that he could see the truth. Verse 20, he says, but what do I still lack? And the word for lack can also be taken as destitute or falling short. Why am I still destitute? You see, that always happens when you try to achieve heaven or peace or any of these great quests at the end of your life or your life now without God. In the Tower of Babel, they built the tower, and you can still see the ziggurats in the Middle East. I, I, I'm not really good with heights, <laughs> so I certainly wouldn't. I'd be on the foundation somewhere. But they just kept building and building, and they were trying to get to heaven. And God's like, man, anything he puts his head to, he's going to accomplish. But they were trying to get to God's heaven without him. And that's what many people are doing today. We fall short when we try to do it on our own. We fall short when we try to earn salvation. It doesn't work. So he he rightfully comes before Jesus and is still lacking and saying, why am I still lacking? What am I missing here? Jesus says in verse 21, well, if you want to be perfect, the guy just told him, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments. Wow, if somebody said that to me, in your mind too? Ooh, you're pretty good. Maybe you should take the pulpit because I can't keep the Ten Commandments. You know what I'm saying? So he goes, if you want to be perfect, prove it. Prove it that you can do this. Remember, if the man, those commandments that Jesus expressed didn't even, they didn't even get to the God part yet. It was still dealing man upon man. You know, how you treat your neighbor, uh, how you don't steal, all those kind of things. So basically what you have here is this this falling short. Now, if the man was really perfect, Jesus said, prove it. The way he could have proved it was, was to say, wow, I never thought of that. Gee, I got a lot of stuff. Hey, Peter, John, get the church box truck. Let's start loading this stuff up and giving it to the poor. But he didn't do that. He went away sad. He was divided. He thought he could keep the commandments towards men, but in his heart, he really couldn't love the poor man that much to start giving away his possessions. So you see a, a, a crack in the man's armor. But again, Jesus was not being mean. He was trying to show him something. I'll just say this. Again, some will take this and they'll read into it that if you want to be a good Christian, you have to give away all your money. No, that's not the case. Except for those of you who are breathing a sigh of relief. Maybe that might be the case for you. Oh, thank God. I got a lot of stuff. (laughs) 
But what Jesus did was he honed in on the man's particular issue. Now, at the end, follow me, and we're going to see that. It's really the key to everything that the man should have been done. He was trying to peel away the layers of the onion to try to get him to the point where all the shields were up, and he can say, this is really what you need to do. So the man had an issue with money. Really, money was his God. Now, I could, see, I could just picture this guy, and it's just my mind. Okay, here's my opinion coming into place. The rich young ruler, he comes on the scene. He's a young guy. He's wealthy. A lot of people may recognize him. Maybe he has certain jewelry. His beard is perfect. He might have some type of robe or insignia that shows that he's a synagogue ruler. I could see him very stern in his appearance, well put together, well groomed. Maybe he had an entourage. But I could picture him with no smile, and no joy. You ever see people like that? Oh, they're self-made. And they're angry about it. You know what I'm saying? They've got everything they could possibly get and they're still not happy. That's my picture of this guy. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you know, sometimes the hard things we need to hear. And it's sometimes somebody who loves you who will say those hard things. He looked at him and loved him. My mentor beat me up so much, in the, not physically, uh, in the beginning that I think he might have thought at some point, Joey's going to run away from me. He was hard on me, but I needed it. And he loved me. And you know what? I, no matter what disagreements we have, no matter where we are at this stage in our life, I love that man. And I'll always love him till the end because he loved me enough. I wouldn't be here if God didn't put certain men in my life to look at me and love me and say hard, hard things for me to hear. Always be open to that. Now, the most important thing Jesus said to him was, follow me. You see, we cannot have a right relationship with God the Father if we don't have a right relationship with God the Son. It's very clear. That's it. 1 John 5 tells us that, you know, he who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have it. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's exclusive, but it's all inclusive. Everyone can come into the fold. Okay, The only way to salvation, the only way to true joy, the only way to true peace, because, listen, we have things that happen to us and we get despondent, our feelings get hurt, um, you know, we go into crisis mode or whatever case it may be, but it's only for those of us who have really bought into and have really tied into the Holy Spirit is that, that peace that surpasses all understanding. It just washes over us. Hey, your life is falling apart. You're going to be kicked out of your house next week. What is with you? How can you have so much joy? It's the, it's the, joy, of, it's the joy of the Lord. You know? Look at, again, the, our missionaries gave up everything to go to Africa. Right? Pretty, pretty good. Verse 22. So the rich young ruler goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus asks, or he asks Jesus an open-ended question about eternal life, and he doesn't like the answer given. Now, it would also be a tragedy if we just looked at this and went home. We really need to ask ourselves right now, what are the hindrances in my life? What is there blocking the signal between me and God? You could Listen, you could be part of the Christian culture. Your parents could be Christian. It doesn't mean anything. God wants your heart individually between you and him. So we can look in our lives and see, for some it may be money. It may be wealth. It may be, I'm a self-made man, and you, you're so, you've got that barrier built around you. 
For some of us, it may be the love of attention, constantly looking for attention. And it clouds your, your vision of what the Lord has for you. For some, it may be pride, maybe vanity. It may be craving relationships with others. I will tell you this, that if you, if you, especially if you have some type of even nominal faith, if you put any relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, above the relationship with the Lord, it will eventually become dysfunctional. It's a trap. Don't fall into it. Get yourself right with the Lord first before you give yourself to another in a relationship. There are many who worship relationships. It's not good. Even addictions. I mean, I, I've seen some that it's all they talk about is the addiction, the addiction. Change the channel. Well, I, they, I fell back into it. That's because you keep focusing on the addictions. Let's move to another frame of your life. You know, leave that behind you. Focus on the Lord. This guy went away sorrowful, which also means to be grieved or in distress. He was despondent. He fell into the trap of the self-made man or the self-made woman. Woman, right? I can do it myself. I could earn salvation. I could do good things. Uh, you know, I'm not a bad person. You start doing that and you go down that road, it ends in despondency all the time. Verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are impossible. Why is it so hard? Again, Let's take the rich person and let's take some of the other things that I spoke about that may be clogging your uh, communication and relationship with the Lord. Let's look at the little G, the little God that sometimes we put up that keeps us from a relationship with God. Because why? What happens? When we make a God in our own image, it comforts us. It soothes us. It makes us feel good physically, emotionally, whatever the case may be. It lulls us into a false sense of security. And what happens is that People by nature, in the flesh, in their minds, will be loyal to the thing that makes them feel good. You see, you see the transition start to happen here? The God thing is too unpredictable. Well, he's God. He's, he's sovereign. I don't know everything he's thinking. So I'm going to hedge my bets with this little God here, with my business, with this relationship, with this addiction. When I don't feel good, I'm going to partake of that. You're hedging your bets because you're not truly, you're not truly trusting the Lord. That's where this is going. You know, we used to, and, you know, and I know when we, I read the Old Testament and you see somebody making a God out of wood and stone, and uh, you know, today we, we laugh at that. How primitive. But our gods are much more sophisticated, aren't they? They're much more deceptive. They're much more ingrained and tricky, where you can break an idol of stone and wood. Our gods can be woven into the fabric of our lifestyles. Amen? Okay. <laughs> Everybody had their coffee this morning. This is great. Uh, <laughs> our gods are more sophisticated today, and they're more deceptive. Verse 25, who then can be saved? Watch even the path. Jesus led the rich young ruler down, and he's leading the disciples down. Hey, disciples, it isn't just him that needs to learn a lesson. It's you guys, too. 
Number 20, verse 25, who then can be saved? Now this threw them for a loop, and you might say they were exceedingly amazed that Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Knowing the culture, understand that the rabbis would teach if you were wealthy, that means that God shows his favoritism on you. That old lie and heresy is alive and well today. Oh, there are some churches where the pastor has his own private jet, stays in $2,000 a night motel rooms, and they have tens of thousands of followers. That lie is still prevalent today. But according to Jesus, it's not true. It threw these guys for a loop. Verse 26, he says, though, with man it is impossible. It's impossible. But with God, all things are impossible. So this is what we learned so far. With the, with the, the Pharisees, the failure of religion is obvious. This, the failure of salvation by merit is obvious. Then Jesus be, debunks riches as a sign of God's approval. And third, again, the failure to merit salvation or attain God's heaven without him and doing it your own way, it's not possible. And this is what God does, and I love this. Jesus shows them, here's hopeless. <laughs> hey guys, look at this. Hopeless. Everything hopeless, impossible. But with God, it's possible. Jesus always shows us our deficit, and then when we see our deficit, And the vacuum, he fills it with something. But here's hope. Let me show you hope. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Let me tell you something. When I read the scripture, I see where I fall short as a father, as a husband, as a Christian, and as a pastor. The more I look at this book and I I, I look at it, it's a mirror. It shows me I'm ugly spiritually. It shows me my deficit. And it shows me that I need Jesus Christ every day. And for those of you who don't know the Lord, you I want to help you to stop banging your head against the wall. Again, I did it for 26, 27 years, and I achieved all the, most of the things I wanted to achieve. But I, just like this guy, I was empty inside. And I was like, what am I still lacking here? What's going on? For those of you who may have really maybe walked away, you have a lackluster faith, this is the sermon for you. You came in here exactly because God wants to reach into your heart, and he wants to, he wants to get you excited for him again. You understand that? For God so loved the world, the world cosmos in the Greek is always used for the rebellious, you know, uh, sinful, antagonistic world. God so loved that world. It didn't say God so loved all the good people. It said he loved all the rebels, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him not perish but have everlasting life. That's your hope. That's the impossible made possible. He said, you know what? You can't earn it. But guess what? Here, it's free. I love you. Here's my Valentine's Day card to you. Here's my Father's Day card to you. Verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. (laughs) I love Peter. He is so funny. (laughs) What about us? Look, look, we left everything. What are we going to get? Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, not just him, Or surely I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow. Wow. I thought it was going to be good. I didn't realize it was going to be that good. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. But many who are first will be last and the Many who, will be, who are first will be last and the last first. So Peter says, okay, 
We see the Pharisees. We see the rich young ruler. He left. We're still here. What are we going to get? <laughs> you got to love his honesty. He can, listen, Jesus could read your mind anyway. So you might as well just say it. What are you thinking, Peter? Give it up. You know, Jesus would be a great interrogator, wouldn't he? Uh, he already knows the answer. So there's a specific reward for apostolic service in the kingdom age. We know that. There are also rewards for us today as believers who serve the Lord. But there's a caveat or a caution to what is considered service. Verse 30, again, many who are first will be last in the last first. We see this, uh, this is the third time that I could just remember that we've been through it in the last few months. He keeps saying it. Both the rich young ruler and the disciples were both in ministry with vastly different ideas of ministry. Understand as we close the me first ministry versus what Jesus says. Especially in Western Christianity, the land of plenty, there is a tendency for those in ministry to try to, they're saved, they can preach dynamite sermons, but they want to get as much as the world as they can as well. It's called the me first ministry. Be careful of that. I won't allow it here. The me first ministry means I want to be pampered. I want to be treated like royalty. I don't want to be a servant. I don't want to get my hands dirty and roll up my sleeves. I don't want to uh, serve alongside the common folk. Jesus said, the first will be last. He said, Jesus, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. The Son of God came to roll up his sleeves and get busy and get going. And he's like, who wants, who wants to join me? Who wants to stand shoulder to shoulder with me? Too many Christians in the Christian community live a me-first life. It isn't just for leaders in ministry. Taking care of number one, making themselves first. The Lord said in Luke 14, I love this, about the wedding feast. He says, you should have this attitude. When you go to a feast and there would be certain positions of honor, don't just go up to the position of honor and assume that you're that important. Jesus said, in your heart, it's a hard attitude. Go sit in the back somewhere. Hang out with the people in the back. And if the, the master of the feast comes to you and says, oh, what are you doing back here? You know, here, let me bring you up to the, to the front table. Well, then go with him. But the attitude, he goes, it would be far worse and far more embarrassing and humiliating for us to go to the head table and for the master of the feast to go, what are you doing here? Go sit back there, you know what I'm saying? That's embarrassing. And that's really a self-deception. He says, consider yourself last and God will exalt you as first. So I will just say this in closing. The path of serving God is a path of joy and peace. And if you don't understand those words, look them up. Find every dictionary you can because they're very rich. Joy and peace, regardless of our circumstances. Had the rich young ruler done what Jesus asked him to, he would have been happy, not sad. Now, how appropriate that we have, again, I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of this today, guys. I'm sorry. But we have missionaries from Africa with us. They, you can see the smiles, the joy, the excitement that they have. Again, some believe, well, gee, I'm going to become a Christian and God's going to send me into some foreign God-forsaken land and he's going to punish me. No. If it is your calling, you will enjoy what you do. I love what I do. I love preaching God's word. You can't stop me from doing this. You know, I'll do it in my backyard and I'll preach to the geese and the chicken that are out there, but I'm doing it. I used to do that before, years ago when I was preparing. <laughs> and they just honk at me. Now I'm really off the track. Okay. <laughs> Joy, not sadness. But understand this, a point that I didn't bring up, that some of you may come out to me and say, hey, you didn't say this point. I'm getting to it. 
Jesus didn't chase the rich young ruler. He set us free moral agents. You have a choice. You could love, you could hate. You could receive love, you could not receive love. He set us forth as free moral agents. We have the choice. Isn't it amazing what type of power God gave us to have that choice of free will? But sometimes we can use it to destroy ourselves. So he won't chase you as he didn't chase the rich young ruler. But that joy is waiting for all of us. But it only comes through submission to Christ and then service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always.